this week on the startup life. And how do you, you know, how do you get a car like that? How do you not work there? Why aren't you at work today? It's a Wednesday right. afternoon. You know, what are you doing? You're going on all these vacations. And ultimately, uh, David saw something in me and uh, invited me to a, a three-day boot camp training. And- All right, Startup Nation, so let's take flight with Kevin Buck, founder and CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors. The startup life begins now. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... startup nation do you enjoy the startup life now you can let the world know with gear from the show choose from the label yourself make your own luck and making money t-shirts to tell your story of your path of entrepreneurship click the link in the show notes to purchase all right startup nation so i hope you're ready to receive some value today we got a special guest in the building today we got mr kevin buck what's going on kev Hey, Dominic. Thanks for having me bud look forward to being here man all righty all righty are you ready to pour some knowledge in the startup nation today I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it. So as always, this is Dominic Lawson of the Startup Life Podcast brought to you by the Binge Podcast Network. So first things first, man, tell me about your path of entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah. So the, the path really began a long, long time ago. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very much a blue collar family. And, uh, and so although we never went without, um, you know, we, sh- we surely didn't get everything we wanted as kids, right? Like there were certain, you know, toys and um, you know, things we, we ultimately wanted that um, the parents wouldn't buy for us and we couldn't wait till Christmas sometimes. And so at a young age, I was always looking for ways to make a buck. And uh, that meant, you know, mowing grass. I mean, I had chores at home, you know, mowing grass and uh, taking the trash out and, you know, walking the dog. And so we had an allowance, right? Little things like that. But then that turned into, you know, shoveling snow and, and mowing grass for the neighbors, you know, making an extra buck there. And then I, at, at, at the age of 12, I got a paper route, started making some more money there. I was, was still hungry for more and, and um, ultimately started, I uh, learned how to install car stereos and amplifiers and okay. build custom speaker boxes when I was like 13 or 14. And I have an older brother, so he was six years older. He had a lot of friends that were into that type of thing. And so I used my parents' garage, turned it into a uh, installation bay on the weekends and, nice. and, and made money uh, installing car stereos and, and that. And, and ultimately just kept moving forward with different endeavors like that throughout high school, um, selling gum, you know, buying it at Balk at like Sam's Club or Costco and selling it at Balk at school and making money that way. And, gotcha. and, uh, and really got my introduction into real estate at the age of 19. That, that was like the first real business to where I could truly say like, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Like it's a real business. It's not just me hustling for an extra buck. And ultimately got my start in real estate at 19 and uh, bought my first rental property at, at the age of 20. I'm 39 uh, now as, as of this recording and uh, ultimately fell in love with, with real estate and have been doing it full time in many different capacities, but you know, as an investor for the last uh, basically 19 years. Uh, along the way, I had many other business endeavors, everything from uh, the salon uh, industry to uh, okay. digital marketing, to, to credit repair. I can't even think of there, There's a number of other ones as well that I'm probably not even thinking of, but had multiple other businesses, but nothing that was ever as lucrative or as one that I had as much passion for as real estate. So that's, that's what we specialize in today. 
And um, that's what's brought me to where I'm at. Got you. I hear that. Thank you for sharing this. So basically came an installation bay at 14, huh? And the, and the parents <laughs> My garage. parents' garage, man. That's yeah, they, they used to drive them crazy. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So really quickly, man, I, I got to ask this because you, you talked about like, you know, uh, your, your parents being able to provide for you, you know, to have everything that you need. Maybe not everything you wanted, but everything you needed for sure. And you mentioned maybe certain toys, man, that you weren't able to get. What was that one toy? He's like, man, I wish I could have had that when I was a kid. What's that one? And you know, I, I, it's funny because I've got two young boys now. I've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And uh, my gotcha. oldest, when he was like two, we got him, um, you know, one of those power wheels, like, you know, four wheelers. Uh, like, they, were like, like, yeah. they, they sell Toys R Us. Toys R Us is no longer around. But I remember being a kid, man. And I remember those damn things. They had like the Bigfoot or they had like the uh, little like Power Wheels Jeeps. And, and they were sure. they were just as much then, you know, whatever, you know, 35 years ago than they, than they are today. They're a couple hundred bucks. And, and I always wanted one of those things. And uh, <laughs> I just never, <laughs> never got one when I was a little kid. So anyway. Got yeah. you. Gotcha. I appreciate that. I, I asked that because over the holidays, my wife bought me the NES Classic Mini. And so uh, I have I had a Nintendo as a kid, but like a lot of the games I wasn't able to afford because just like you, we had everything we needed, maybe not everything we wanted. And so yeah. I, I kind of spend my adult life kind of like trying to make up for some of that if, as much as I Yeah, can. yeah. I was really into like remote control cars and things like that. And uh, gotcha. they were quite expensive. And uh, so now my son, I get to kind of uh, live vicariously through my, my oldest. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, we just got him into, you know, mo control cars and got him a mo control airplane and teach him how to fly that thing. And so, I, again, I'm, I'm kind of reliving those childhood years and, and filling in the gaps that might have occurred. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. And a path of entrepreneurship kind of allows you to do that probably a little bit more than you would if it had a typical nine to five. So, I appreciate hearing that. Absolutely. So, let me ask you this, man. Who or what inspires you as an entrepreneur, man? What, what, what's that thing that's like, man, that's kind of cool? And it just kind of helps you get up in the morning. What's that thing that inspires you as an entrepreneur? You know, you know, really, it's um, uh, is it, number one. I think first and foremost is is finding something that you truly love, uh, yeah. and I, and I really do love and I enjoy um, every aspect of our business today. And um, but in addition to that, I the the, the one thing that I probably uh, became fully aware of, and not not that I. I, I didn't know it existed, but fully aware of was probably about six years ago was actually helping others. Now, okay. that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that, you know, prior to that, I didn't help anyone and I was selfish. It just For means sure. that I wasn't fully aware of, uh, of the, the just amazing benefit, both uh, on a personal level, personal growth level, but also, you know, as growing a business and, and, and being a successful entrepreneur, that helping others, just really putting others first and ensuring that you give value to that next person that you pass it on. Um, and ultimately, you help enough other people realize their own success, uh, you'll realize it yourself. And I know Zig Ziglar has a saying that goes along those lines, and I always butcher his, his quote, but ultimately, that's it, just really helping others. And I think that's the one thing that has just been a game changer, is, is waking up every day excited to, how can I help that next person you know, find their way in this world? And um, th that gets me jacked up every day, man. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned, man, that you kind of got into real estate at 19 and made your first deal at 20. So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. So what pushed you in the real estate direction, man? What gets you so excited about it? Yeah, yeah. I, I would like to say that I that I pushed myself and that just that's, okay. that's the furthest from the truth because that wasn't the case. I didn't really, okay. real estate wasn't um, something that was on my radar. Um, it kind of found me. Uh, so I was on real estate's radar. Uh, in, in any event, it was a gentleman by the name of David. Uh, David was about 20, 25 years older than I. And uh, he just happened to be dating the mom of the girl that I was dating, right? And that, so that's okay. how I met David. And David was a local real estate investor. And 
and um, had a completely different background than what I grew up in as far as, you know, uh, you know, my parents worked nine to five you know, the cars that we drove, how we, my parents dressed, how I dressed, all that. And uh, David just seemed to have a pretty cool lifestyle. He was a really cool guy. Uh, had kind of paved his own way, owned a number of rental properties. And um, again, I just I was kind of inspired by more so probably initially the material things, you know, just because at that age, sure. I'm like, man, how do you, you know, how do you get a car like that? How do you not work? Why aren't you at work today? It's a Wednesday right. afternoon, you know, what are you doing? Are you going on all these vacations. And ultimately, uh, David saw something in me and uh, invited me to a, a three-day boot camp training in, in real estate investing. Again, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, didn't know what I was uh, uh, going to learn during those three days. All I knew is that, hey, this guy just offered to take me to a, a seminar that he paid like $3,000 for, and um, I need to go. I need to go because I truly wouldn't be paying that, that money myself, and I'm going to take advantage of it and see if there's something I can learn here. And, and I walked away from that, that three days with a newfound passion of, of really getting myself to the level of those, some of those folks that I'd met there uh, and, and also David to their success that they had in real estate. And so that was really the, uh, the, you know, the introduction to real estate for me. And uh, what I did with that was, you know, I was overwhelmed. I went to these three days, I was overwhelmed. I, I didn't know enough to really go off on my own. Um, and I didn't really have much money. I had, at that time, I was going to school, right. community college, and I was attending bar part-time in the evening just to make my way. And so I had some money saved up, but I surely didn't have a ton. And uh, ultimately, I, I went to Dave and I said, how can I add value to your business? Right? How can I be around you more so that I can learn this business, learn the intricacies of this business, you know, the who, the what, the whys, and, uh, and also how to not lose money, but make money, right? Right, for and, sure. Uh, and that's what we did. So I, he, he, he basically accepted my offer and I, I did everything and anything, you know, working with David for about a year. Uh, and, and that was in between my classes and tending bar in the evenings. Whenever I wasn't working or in school, I was either at David's office or out in the field with him doing anything he asked me to do to assist him in his business. And in turn, I learned a ton and uh, ultimately stepped out and did my first deal on my own about a year later. Got you. That's fascinating. And thank you for sharing that because I, I love hearing stories like that. When you talked about, you know, you were dating a young lady and her mom was dating David, right? And that's kind of how that came to be. It reminds me of an episode we had a few weeks back where uh, we had the U.S. memory champion on the show. And he talked about how he got into, you know, competing with memory and stuff like that. And he was just flipping channels on 2020 one night and just kind of saw it, got fascinated with it. So I love hearing stories like that, man. Thank you for sharing that, Kevin. I appreciate that for sure. So look, man, you know, you've closed over like $40 million in real estate transactions over your, uh, over a decade and a half in the game of uh, real estate and stuff like that. And, and I get that, you know, your industry, real estate, it fluctuates all the time. Right. But I want you to tell me about that one deal to where at the time he's like, man, I crushed it. But in retrospect, it's like, you know what? That wasn't a smart move. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily have one deal that I can speak to, but okay. what I can speak to is a, is actually a period of time. Uh, and that's back during the great recession of 2007, mm, 2008. Right. Um, I had, uh, I had built up quite a large portfolio in my early twenties. I essentially moved from Pennsylvania where I grew up down to Florida when I was 22 years old. And I had been investing at that point for, you know, just going on two years and uh, knew I wanted to, number one, get out of the cold. I wasn't a big fan of the cold weather. And gotcha. I wanted to go somewhere where the sun was shining and there was the beach. And, uh, and Can't just, beat Florida. I love water. You know, I, I love <laughs> right. being on the boat. And um, anyway, came to Florida, continued on and uh, just really went gangbusters once I got here. Uh, started building my business, uh, built up quite a large portfolio of single family rental properties and multifamily apartment buildings. And um, 2008 came, uh, 2007, 2008 era came 
like a freaking uh, uh, a blizzard, man. It just mm. it came and it came in hot and heavy, and uh, and absolutely crushed my hopes and dreams and everything that I had spent so many years building. And um and and, and essentially, long story short, wiped it out in a matter of eight months. Uh, completely oh, wow. wiped me out from making a pretty significant monthly cash flow and having a uh, a net worth of you know north of twenty million dollars to um, basically being worth you know, negative, negative zero and, um, and, and essentially making no money, no money on a monthly basis, having uh, multiple, multiple properties in foreclosure, primary residence in foreclosure, getting my bank mm. accounts garnished. I mean, literally it's about as bad as you could possibly think of getting. Right. It got about 10 times worse than that. And so, so it wasn't just one individual deal. It was really a, a point in time in the real estate right. cycle. And, uh, and ultimately I got caught with the wrong timing, just uh, not, not necessarily fully prepared for just the wrath that was uh, about to uh, ensue. And uh, it, was a, it was a challenging couple of years, not just one year. Oh, for sure. Um, it took me about three and a half years to really uh, get my head back on straight and to, to get back fully into the game mm-hmm. and, and, and get my confidence back and uh, really move towards rebuilding the platform. Got you. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. And I was going to ask about that, that period between, you know, 2007, 2008, but before I, I guess we're going to do that a little bit sooner, but before I get to that question, man, you, you talked about, you know, just now quick follow-up, you talked about how it took you about three, you know, three and a half years to kind of, you know, get your confidence back, this, that, and the other. Tell me about that first six months to a year, man. Like what was mm. that point? Like, tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to trying to really think back. I've tried to truly like, you know, uh, block that out away that that part of my life. Right, fair enough. You know, but there's some very I'll speak to the there's some, there were some very positive things that that even though the world was ending for me financially, there were some gotcha. incredibly positive things that that were also happening simultaneously. It's amazing how the universe and how God kind of uh, you know puts the you know kind of does a gut check to you. Mm. But then on the other side, like there's, if, if you're willing to look and open your eyes up, there's, there's positive things shining through as well. And, and you got to be willing to open your eyes and see them. Anyway, that's actually when I met literally about three weeks before I defaulted on basically uh, 80, 85% of the loans I had. That's when I met who was now my wife. Mm. So, and, and the mother to my, my children. So that happened right at that really challenging point in my life. But as far as, you know, the six months or so following that, that period of time, right. You know, the one thing that my wife was very positive or or my my girlfriend at the time was very positive to my life. But the one thing that really helped me just, you know, uh, I guess push through was uh, I was really into health and fitness. And I knew that was the one thing that I had control over was how how I felt. And I knew that obviously if you, if you drink, if you drink a ton, you eat like crap, you feel like crap, right? Whatever Mm -hmm. goes in comes out. And so I, I, I became even more conscious of, of my health and my personal fitness at that point, because I felt like, you know, if I just make my, if my, make my body and my mind as strong as possible, then ultimately this, you know, I'll be able to push through um, these challenging situations that are going to come at me. Cause it wasn't just a matter of like, Hey, I was in default and you know, I'm going to get a couple calls from a bank and it's going to be all over. It's like, this is going to be a long-term process to work through this. And it's going to be lots of, lots of judgments, lots of court dates, lots of knocks on the door, lots of phone calls. Um, and, um, and, and I just focused on my health and fitness. I focused on being personally happy. And, um, you know, another thing that was uh, a good learning experience um, and, and a positive thing that came out of it, which I didn't really see at the time, and this is other than meeting my wife, was uh, leading up until 2008, I had just amazing credit. I could literally go sign on any, any size loan. Uh, I had many credit cards I had established for many years where I had hundred plus thousand dollar credit lines. And, you know, I just, it, it was never a question whether or not I could get credit. It was like, how much do I want? 
Well, when, when everything came crashing down, a lot of my credit card companies, although I never defaulted on any of my credit card or consumer debt, they started seeing that I was defaulting on mortgages and they started shutting off my credit cards completely. Like literally not just lowering the, the, the limits, but you know, shutting them off completely. And so I went from having you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of open credit availability to like $1,500, no joke. Uh, There's two credit cards that kept me, Bank of America and Discover, and one had a $500 limit, the other had a $1,000 limit. So what, what I had to learn to do very quickly was live on the, the money that I had and not, not, rely, not be able to rely on credit for anything at all. Like literally, like, you know, go back to a cash in hand type situation. So that taught me to um, just uh, live a completely different lifestyle. Not that I didn't, I never over leveraged, but uh, when you can only pay for things in cash, you yeah. start really questioning, you know, the need for that, that particular item or you really start playing ahead to, uh, you know, for example, like a car, like you need a new car. Like you can't just go sign a loan for a 40 or $50,000 car. You know, like it's not possible. Like, right. like that is not possible anymore. You better have the, the cash, all of it. And you better, that's, that better be what you want to spend that 40 or $50,000 on is that car. Is that the smartest decision to make at this point in time? And, uh, and it was a very positive experience to come out of that. I'm, I'm just a, I'm a much more conservative investor nowadays because of it. Some might see uh, a downside to that, but I don't, I, I very much see it as a, a very cautious, a very considerate of, um, you know, the current cycle that we're in for and sure. also the types of investments that we're, uh, that we're, that we're putting our money into. So for- for sure, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. And I love you that you talked about controlling what you control. I think that's a very important piece, Startup Nation, when we talk about our path to entrepreneurship. But, you know, you talked about that 2007-2008 period. I actually, you know, want to ask you something about that, man. So, you know, it, it probably wasn't just you. It was a lot of people to where things kind of went upside down in the real estate space during that period, you know, uh, in the economy and our recession and stuff like that. So what are some lessons that we can take away from 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008 in the real estate space that can help in the future if it were to happen again? Yeah, I mean, as far as real estate is concerned, I look back and, and I surely look back many different times and say, you know, to ask myself, what would I have done differently? You know, sure. what could I have done to, to avoid that? And although there were many smarter people than I that, that also had, you know, that were, had been through cycles before that also got crushed and, and lost their, their wealth, you know, even with that being said, a few of the things that I learned personally was to, you know, we were always cash flow investors. Like everything we always buy is about the, we look at each piece of real estate as its own individual business and how much cash will that, that produce on a monthly basis, on an annual basis and put money in our pocket, right? Like we don't, we don't speculate. We don't buy just based on appreciation. Uh, we want cash flow coming in our pocket each and every month. And with that being said, one of the things that I do today with every single investment we make, which we didn't do so much back then, is we run every new deal that we underwrite through a, sensi- a sensitivity analysis. Okay. And that sensitivity analysis will, will have different uh, situations or scenarios to where, you know, uh, what kind of debt do we get today on it? Um, you know, assuming that, you know, our, our initial business plan, plan A, is to you know, refinance in three years, pull X amount of dollars out, get our investors 80% of their capital back, and then ultimately put a new loan in place at this interest rate in, in year three, and this is what our cash flows are going to look like moving forward. Well, what happens if when we go to do a refinance in year three, we can't pull all that cash out and get our investors paid back? What if interest rates go up 1%? What if they go up 2%? What does that deal look like? You know, what can we still hit our long-term strategy? That's plan B. And then we look at a plan C and then a plan D and we try to figure out what the worst case scenario might look like. 
And then we look at the deal as a whole and say, can we get comfortable if this ultimately would play out as a worst case scenario? And then, you know, try to find that, that, that comfortable ground of we're good with this deal, you know, no matter what happens or no matter what we think might happen in the next five years, we still can hit our numbers. We still can get our investors, you know, the return that they're looking for in their capital, no matter what the market does. And so that's one thing I, I, I can't that. tell you I did, you know, back in, uh, you know, prior to 2007, 2008. For sure. Um, but surely, like, there's deals that we walk away from now that I probably, that makes sense today. They literally mm-hmm. make sense today, where we're at today. But there was too much risk in not knowing what the next three, four, or five years could bring that we decided not to do the deals. Now, someone else might buy them and they might turn out, you know, on, on the positive side. But, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. There's a deal up in New York that we just recently passed on that um, it was on private septic system. And it was also a deal that we would have to get local debt on because of the size of it. And local debt typically carries like a five-year balloon, meaning that in five years, you've got to get new debt put in place on it. Now, that's one of the risks. That's, that's the first risk because we don't know what the capital markets are going to look like four years from now when we have right. to start going through that refinance process. This deal makes sense today based on the 4.75 interest rate I can get on it. But at like a, you know, assuming five years from now, rates could be at six and a half percent, the deal gets a lot tighter, okay? That, that wasn't enough for us to kill the deal. We were still comfortable enough in that deal. The second layer of challenge was this park was on, like a, this mobile home park was on septic systems and that particular county really doesn't like septic systems. And okay. some of these septic systems were very old. Some were new, some were old. The old ones made up about half of the community and that was about uh, 30 mobile homes. And so there was a lot of revenue. And what happened is if one of those septics would go bad, I don't want to get into too many weeds here about septic systems because that's not what your show's about, but we wouldn't be able to replace it. The county would not let us replace it. And that means we would lose a revenue unit because that mobile home would have to move off the lot and move out of the park. And so we knew that the septic systems were old enough to where ultimately they're going to fail over time. They might last, they might last five years, they might last 15 years, but they're kind of at their, at the end of their economic life. And if we lost five units over the next five years, it would absolutely kill our numbers. And I thought that was realistic. Like, mm-hmm. would it happen? May, maybe not, but could it happen? Very realistic that it could. And you paired with the potential rise of interest rates, we didn't feel confident in the deal. It just wasn't worth the risk for us. Today, the numbers are great. Five years, we probably wouldn't be as excited about it uh, if it didn't go as planned. And so we decided to pass. Someone else ultimately bought it for the same price that we had it under contract for. Maybe they didn't do a sensitivity analysis. Maybe they didn't know as much as we knew, but we dig really deep to determine what it looks like today, but also what does the future look like for that deal? And will it economically meet our, you know, our end investment criteria? Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually don't mind the part about talking about septic systems because one of the things we talk about on the startup life is that like, even when you're in a particular space of a business or something like that, there are all these, you know, auxiliary pieces that we need to know about as well. So like with, if you're in real estate, then clearly those, those, that, that septic part, you know, you have to kind of discuss and know about a little bit and you probably pick up some uh, knowledge about septic systems that you really didn't anticipate, but you know, that's kind of the life of an entrepreneur. So I actually do appreciate that part. Kevin, you know, and, and since we're talking about mobile, you know, mobile home parks and stuff like that, I know that that's one of those things that you're really passionate about. That's your niche, especially there at uh, Sunrise Capital Investments or whatever, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. So why have you been able to kind of really make your mark in the mobile home sector? Like how yeah. have you found success there? 
Sure, sure. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, it's not where we started. Uh, we okay. started buying single family residential homes many years ago, then, then bought apartment complexes. I've owned lots of other types of commercial real estate over the years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and ultimately, it was, again, just like a lot of things in my life, it was kind of an accident that we stumbled upon mobile home parks. Okay. And um, I was introduced uh, to this space back in 2011, 2012 period of time, um, just by a mutual friend, introduced me to a guy that, that you know, happened to own mobile home communities. Uh, and I, I just, I like meeting new people. I mean, your, your net worth is your network. I'm a firm believer in that. And so right. um, I went into this lunch meeting with this individual named Randy that owned mobile home parks with, with no interest whatsoever in this niche. I literally just wanted to go meet someone new that ultimately was a successful real estate investor. I had no interest in learning really what he did as a business or learning more about his space, which is mobile home parks. And uh, after that two hour meeting, I walked away saying, there's something to this. I need to learn more. And, uh, and I want to test this, uh, th- this theory out as far as, you know, why he thought mobile home parks were so much better than all the other different real estate asset classes out there. And that's not necessarily the case, but that's what his, his opinion was. And, and I, and I like to either prove or disprove a concept when I find something that's, uh, you know, of interest or intriguing to me. And so that's ultimately what I did. This is, this is back in 2012. I bought uh, our first mobile home community just to test it out and see if we can make some money with it. Made some great money on that first deal. Still own that one today. Okay. And I uh, bought a second, bought a third, bought a fourth. And, and just again, started seeing that I could essentially turn this into a, a very lucrative business. And it was something that uh, I could put my focus and energy on, which I'm a big fan of. I like picking one thing and just kind of mastering it and, and building a business out of it, not going in a million different directions. And that's what's really brought us to today. I mean, you know, we I bought a first couple of mobile home parks with my own money or with a with just one partner. Uh, and then we got to the point to where, you know, we couldn't necessarily fund future investments just by ourselves with our uh, limited capital resources. And so we formed the company and started raising capital under the name of Sunrise Capital Investors. And uh, uh, now we have, you know, over 100 investors that, that basically have partnered with us uh, over the years uh, in the uh, numerous assets that we that we own today. So we're currently in 13 different states. We've got assets in 13 different states, and uh, we're buying all across the country right now. So, and it's all mobile home parks. Gotcha, gotcha. And startup nation, if that's something that you're interested in, you can look at uh, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. We have the link there in the show notes for easy access. So, Kevin, I want to ask you this because you know when you talk about mobile home parks, it kind of gets a bad rap from time to time because of the, the clientele that kind of, you know, it draws a little bit. It's like this, maybe not the necessarily the same clientele as somebody who's looking for an apartment in Manhattan, right? Since you kind of mentioned New York earlier. So, you know, how are you able to serve with those clients and still have a profitable venture, man? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Well, first and foremost, let me, I'll, I'll debunk the myth there as far okay. as, you know, a, a challenging uh, tenant base to service or client base to service. For sure. I, li- I like to give the comparison. Everyone knows, you know, everyone at one point or another probably has lived in an apartment or, you know, knows somebody that lives in an apartment complex, right? right. Um, in any different city that, uh, Dominic, either that you live in or any of your listeners live in, you probably know the area of town that's got the really rough apartments. Like you don't even want to go there during the day. It's just like sure. red and full of crime. Right. And then there's other you know, newer built apartments, right? Like the new, like really high end, they've got dog park, they got swimming pools. I mean, they're like they're, they service and cater to white collar folks, six right. figure earners. And then you got kind of everything in between. You got the apartment complexes that are just you know, good, good hardworking folks, the working class, they're in good areas, good school districts, uh, aren't bad, aren't like the A-class type stuff, but they're right in the middle. The same thing exists in our, in our space. I mean, you've got some really rough trailer parks that are just full of the wrong clientele. You just, you want to run from as fast as possible. Right. And you got some really nice ones. I mean, I, I'm talking 
there's mobile home parks, for example, here in Florida where we live that are, they're surely not affordable. They're very A-class. Um, a lot of them are second homes for snowbirds that, that come down from up north. They've got mm-hmm. palm tree lined streets. They've got swimming pools. They've got shuffleboard. They've got activity director. You know, the list goes on and on. And then you've got everything that kind of falls in the middle, which is geared towards that working class, just like the apartments I told you about. So with that being said, we typically, uh, we cater to those working class folks that want the best for their kids. They want to be in good school districts. They want to live in a clean, safe, and quiet environment. And so, you know, we've got screening processes in place to basically kick, keep out the riffraff. Uh, and only allow the good folks in that want to live in a good, clean community. And so servicing our clientele is not challenging. I mean, obviously, there's always there's always that one, you know, there's always that one yeah, individual that kind of like squeezes through the system um, sure. and works their way in, but we work them out pretty quickly. So our, our tenant base is not challenging whatsoever to service, or, or not, I should say, not any more challenging than that, uh, that that might live in an apartment complex or that might rent you know, a single-family home from somebody. So uh, very, very good people that we cater to. Folks, again, just want to, they want to work hard. They want to pave the way for their family. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And so, man, how do you find mobile home parks to purchase? Like, you know, you just go through like a Google search, like Craigslist. Like, how's that, pro- what does that prospecting process look like for you? Yeah. You know, we do a bunch of proprietary things here, but, okay. um, you know, we, uh, you know, you, you can go through brokers. So, for example, okay like a real estate agent, a real estate broker. There's multiple brokers out there that specialize in selling this particular type of investment, mobile home parks. So right. that's one way to go. Um, they're, they're all across the country. Uh, you can go to, there's a couple listing websites. Uh, loopnet.com is, is probably the, the, the most well-known commercial real estate listing website. Inside that website is a, like a subsection, which is for mobile home parks. So you can find uh, parks for sale there. Um, there's a, another website called mobilehomeparkstore.com, which is a listing site. But what we do uh, or what we found over the years is that we really enjoy and we get better deals and, and find greater value in dealing directly with an owner and buying directly from an owner than we do when there's a broker involved or before the property might get listed out to the general marketplace. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. 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 And so most of the stuff we buy is direct to owner and, and, and we do a lot of different marketing strategies to get to them. Uh, we have a full-time person in, in our office at cold calls, uh, literally day after day, cold calls, uh, mobile right. home park operators like ourselves and basically, mm-hmm. you know, initiates a dialogue with them, you know, and hopefully we'll get them on the day when they decide they want to sell their property. Uh, we do a lot of direct mail and we do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, paid advertising. And so we, we drive a lot of the leads doing direct to owner marketing. So that, that's how we buy most of our properties. Um, and it's, and it's done quite well for us. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And Startup Nation, the uh, the link to all those websites that Kevin just mentioned is there in the show notes for easy access. Kevin, I want to shift gears just a little bit and just kind of mm-hmm. talk about real estate as a, no, kind of in the future a little bit. So sure. an article that was released in the Richmond Times the, uh, Dispatch uh, as of this recording, probably like, uh, maybe about 15, 16 hours ago, uh, said that millennials and Gen Z are driving trends in commercial real estate. And it's due in large part to millennials and the generation that comes behind them, Gen Z, are driving trends such as co-working space and demand for smaller apartments with lots of commercial amenities and walkable urban areas. Have you noticed this? No. And how do you see these generations who have seemed to disrupt all other industries disrupt real estate as well? Yeah, you know, I would say that we don't necessarily cater to, you know, the generations that you, that you just mentioned there. Okay. I think a lot of those generations are looking for more urban core type uh, places to live, places gotcha. that are truly walkable to uh, restaurants. And, um, you know, the co-working movement is absolutely huge. But, I, you know, our, our normal clientele base, are, it's, it's more of a 
more of a suburban nature. Uh, okay. So they're, they're, they're on the, not necessarily the outskirts of a town, but they're, they're outside of the urban core market. You know, they're basically just like a, a single family neighborhood would be. Uh, that's very similar in location to where, uh, where our communities might exist. And we've got a different, we, we've got a different um, a variety of communities that we offer. Some communities are just very basic workforce housing, meaning that the folks that live there, they really want the most affordable option for them. They want it to be safe. They want it to be clean, but mm-hmm. they're not really, they'd rather have a cheaper price than to pay more and have amenities like a swimming pool and a, and a gym and a co-working space and things of that nature. They just okay. want a, a very inexpensive place to, to raise their families. And that's for the most part who we're actually catering to our families as well. Um, not necessarily the, the generation that you spoke to there. Gotcha. Uh, we do have some higher end uh, communities uh, that, that might have like uh, clubhouses and you know, gyms and things of that nature. But again, still not necessarily the clientele you spoke to there. But with okay. that being said, there is a subsection of our industry th- that is catered to the Gen, Gen Y's and Gen X. Is that is that the two that we're uh, speaking to? Yeah, uh, Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z, yeah. Gen Z, I'm sorry. Gen, yeah, no Gen worries. Y and Gen Z. No worries. Um, you know, the, the tiny house movement is, is pretty big, mm-hmm. and, and it's, still, it's still a trend, uh, and it's still kind of pushing forward, and it's growing. There are a number of older mobile home communities that maybe when they were built 60, 70 years ago, they weren't necessarily in the path of progress. They weren't, you know, inside of the city limits of a given area. Right. But 70 years later, they are, right? Like they're okay. literally like kind of like, they could be the eyesore. They're kind of in an area that is, you know, prime for redevelopment, prime for a higher and better use. And what, what I've seen a lot of folks do, and this, again, this is not our business model, but this is surely an opportunity that exists in our space. It's just not sure. in line with our exact business model. For sure. Is, is a lot of folks will take these older communities and they'll basically take out the old rundown mobile homes or trailers and basically put these tiny houses back in place because uh, a tiny house is considered an RV or a mobile home. Uh, okay. And essentially create a community, a tiny house community that is much more trendy, you know, caters to the, the generations that we're speaking of much, much more than our typical community might. And so there's a lot of opportunity in our space to do, to cater to that crowd. The folks mm-hmm. that they don't, they don't need a lot of space. You know, they're look, they're looking more for shared workspaces than they are to have a dedicated home office, right? They don't want a whole bedroom dedicated to a home office. Right. They'd rather go to a cafe up the road or, or to a co-working space and right. actually go to a more social environment to do their work on their laptop. They don't need a place at home to do so. And they don't need a lot of space because really they don't want to stay underneath that roof. They, they just want to sleep there. Other right. than that, they want to be out in the restaurant. They want to be hanging out with their friends and uh, being in that more urban core environment. So w- with that being said, again, I, our current business model doesn't cater to Gen Y or Gen Z, but there are aspects of our business that surely do. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I guess I just wanted to kind of get your take on, you know, that space in general, you know, as a, a real estate investor and a person who's in that space, uh, to kind of point out that like you do pay attention, not just to your, you know, current business model, but like all, you know, all across the real estate specter and stuff like that. So. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. one of the big shifts that's, that's occurring is the percentage, generally speaking, of folks that, you know, have a desire to be a homeowner, right? I mean, okay. You know, back 30, 40 years ago, like that was a thing, right? Live the American dream and everyone strived to actually own a home and it's really made a huge shift. And I think a lot of the, the Gen Y and the Gen Z or see maybe what their parents might have gone through or hear of the stories of what their parents have gone through and they necessarily don't want to be tied down to a home. They don't want to be tied down to a mortgage. Uh, a lot of them are actually, get, you know, you know that, that generation, they're getting, they're thinking about marriage way later on in life, right? They're not worried about that today. They're not worried about being stuck in one city. They want to float around. They want flexibility. And, uh, and, and they want to rent. They don't, they don't have an interest in owning. And so uh, we're fully aware of that. Again, it's mm-hmm. a different clientele than what we serve. But 
the real estate market in general, at least the residential side of it, uh, those that are catering towards renters uh, are fully aware. And I think there's been major shifts that have occurred uh, within real estate industry due to uh, the changes in habits that are, that are taking place with these different generations. So. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. How you like being on the startup life so far, Kevin? No, it's absolutely awesome, Dominic. You do an awesome job, man. All right, Startup Nation. So I hope you're getting great value from Kevin's content, but we got to pay a few bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson. Listen to the Startup Life Podcast, and it is powered by the Binge Podcast Network. business owner the startup life reach is growing wouldn't you like your business to grow with it reach out to us to advertise on the startup life you can reach us at 901-857-4818 or you can email me at dominic at askalsolutions.com i mean don't get me wrong like this is a great music to have break on but wouldn't this break sound a lot better with the same music but your business being advertised on it need more content from the startup life you say you can now sign up for the startup life all access pass on the binge podcast network's patreon page there is exclusive content written by yours truly video content where i share even more of my business philosophies and whatever crazy content i can think of out of that crazy head of mine and at only five dollars a month yeah five dollars a month this is more content for you startup nation to really get ahead of your competition so instead of upsizing that meal at your favorite fast food joint you can now invest in yourself on your path to entrepreneurship click the link in the show notes to sign up all right startup nation so let's continue so man tell us about sunrise capital investors man tell us all about your company yeah, so we uh, we specialize in mobile home park investments, as we've been talking about here. Right, and um, we are a investment firm that essentially works with accredited investors to uh, essentially partner with them on on acquisitions, new acquisitions. So we buy mobile home parks all across the country, and we essentially, you know, a lot of times we'll buy things that are somewhat distressed or uh, haven't been run efficiently, so they have some challenges within the operations, and we'll right. take those mobile home parks and turn them into something great, something that, um, that runs efficiently, that has a, a very uh, concise operation to it. And essentially, you know, with these partners that, that invest with us, we'll essentially give them a, you know, a, a nice return on their capital. We, we handle the day-to-day operations. We handle finding the deals, basically closing on the deals, you know, putting the debt in place in the deals, A to Z, and our and partners essentially enjoy a passive income stream as a result of it. So we get our hands dirty, we roll up our sleeves and all of our partners, investors, these accredited investors essentially can diversify their investments and they can diversify it into the mobile home park space and uh, rely on a, you know, uh, an operator with a track record, someone that's been there and done that and uh, has done it many different times, which is us. I hear that. I hear that. Thank you for sharing that. So I saw an interesting graphic on your website, the investment life cycle. Share that with Startup Nation and what that's all about. 
Yeah, it's just really the, it's the approach we take with each one of our mobile home parks that we purchase. It just kind of, kind of runs you through the, the, I would say it's a typical life cycle. It's not, it's not every deal that, that runs through that exact same For uh, sure. formula. But in any event, it, it, it kind of shows the life cycle to our investors. So they get into a deal with us and, and ultimately the cycle that their, their capital goes through from us acquiring the deal to us, you know, adding value, raising rents, to us refinancing, to us doing a cash out with that refinance, getting some of their initial investor capital back to them or all of it back to them. And then ultimately, we're a long-term investment firm. And so everything we buy, we don't buy with the intent of buying it and then flipping it just in a couple of years. We do have the, the end goal to get our investor capital back to them as fast as possible. But after we get that initial investor capital back to them, it's really all about this long-term relationship that we have. They, they still retain their ownership in our deals and we run off into the sunset together enjoying passive income streams for for many years to come so that's essentially what we try to highlight there showing the investors that might have an interest in investing with our company exactly what's going to happen with their capital and really what our ultimate goal is over maybe like the first five years of a any individual deal got you thank you for sharing that so man you have a quite the team there at sunrise you got yourself charles brian and your wife joanna tell us a little bit about your team and brag on them a little bit yeah you know i need to update the website because our team's way bigger than what it should Okay. On the website. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, and, and we got a lot more. It's funny. I, we're actually rebuilding that site right now. So, I just kind of FYI for all the listeners, we own a lot more properties than what it reflect reflect on that website. Okay. And our team is much larger. So, um, you know, in addition to what's shown on the website as far as our team, for sure. uh, we also have five other staff members here uh, in house. And then we employ uh, a litany of folks out in the field that actually work in our individual communities. So, I mean, gotcha. in, in addition to what you see on the website there, we've got um, a couple different acquisitions folks uh, on our team. So, in okay. addition to myself, which I kind of head up the acquisition side, we've got two junior acquisition team members. Uh, we've got a director of operations that's here in-house that oversees all of our asset management. Uh, we've got a junior operations uh, staff member. We've got a transactional coordinator that kind of handles our deals. So once we get them in the contract, she carries it all the way to closing, co- coordinates with the sellers, with the attorneys, with the title companies and all that stuff that goes on. We've got a, uh, a, a marketing specialist in-house and we also have a social media person in-house that essentially nice. helps us grow our social presence, helps with our, I've got two different podcasts. They really help us grow the podcast network and um, which ultimately drives a lot of the capital that comes into our business. So uh, I think I named everybody. I think I've got everyone nailed. <laughs> gotcha, <laughs> so, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we've got n- nine or 10 full-time employees here. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And, and so, Kevin, you know, all throughout this episode, one thing I really like is that, like, you, you're not just telling us about real estate, but you're also kind of teaching us, you know, some of the subtleties in that space. And so you brought up the podcast. So I kind of want to talk about that now. So you do sure. have a podcast, the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, which, you know, you and your guests uh, kind of, you know, from time to time, help people gain more vital real estate knowledge. So what's your ultimate goal with the show, man? I, I've seen you've been in the top 100 of iTunes a couple of times, man. So what's the ultimate goal with the show? Yeah, you know, the, I'll kind of start from the beginning with the show. Sure. Um, I've been listening to podcasts for longer than people even knew what a podcast was, right? I mean, seriously, I've been listening Fair to podcasts enough. for probably 12 years. I mean, long time. I used to drive way more than what I do now. Gotcha. Um, and so I'd be listening, I'd always be listening to shows. And very quickly, at least back then, you know, I quickly ran out of what I felt to be quality content or relevant content uh, to me as far as business content and not specifically to real estate. There was a number of real estate podcasts out there, but most of them were focused on residential real estate investing. And that wasn't, at that point, I was already transitioned into commercial real estate and it just wasn't, it wasn't filling that void. Right. And so, you know, a couple of years went by and I'm like, man, 
someone's got to start a commercial real estate investing podcast. And, and ultimately no one did. And so I did, I said, you know, to do this. And so um, <laughs> I bought the equipment, it took me about a year to actually start it. My wife threatened to sell the equipment if I didn't start the podcast. And, <laughs> and you know, what it really came down to was like, there was two things I, I went into it with two different kind of mindsets. It wasn't about monetizing. It wasn't about making money. It was about number one, adding value to folks. I knew that if I was out there looking for that type of content, there was thousands of other folks out there looking for the same content. I hear that. So I wanted to add value to people and I wanted to show them there's a bigger, better way than just res residential investments. You know, commercial real estate is really the way to build just huge wealth uh, as a real estate investor. So I wanted to share that with the world. In addition to that, I wanted to interview a number of folks that probably wouldn't take the time of day to speak with me otherwise. And so I've had some okay. just huge players on the show, guys that own, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar portfolios in Chicago, New York. I've had this wow. guys that are just, you know, bigger than life on the show that surely would have never taken the time of day to speak with me. So I got to ask questions that, you know, you know, sitting down for coffee for an hour with, with one of these big heavy hitters, you know, what, whatever my heart desires, I got to ask them. And, uh, and I did that on the show. And so I got to share that with the world. So that was the initial kind of push me to do it is just to have fun with it me educate myself, me educate my listeners. And it turned into something even bigger than that. It's, it's really turned into um, kind of a, a life of its own. And uh, we've helped out tens of thousands of people. We, we've interviewed just some awesome folks in the show and, and I've had a lot of fun with it. And it's really helped us grow our business as well. In addition to the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, about three years ago, uh, we launched a mobile home park specific podcast. And that okay. was due to the, again, another void. There was no one out there really speaking or teaching about this niche. And uh, so we saw the void. We had a lot of people reaching out to us asking about it, you know, and uh, we figured we would answer those questions and, and give that value back in the form of a podcast. So we've been doing that show now for, for, for over two years. I think it's going on three years here soon. So gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Got you. Thank you for sharing that. And Startup Nation, the links for both of those podcasts are there in the show notes for easy access to check out Kevin's amazing content. So, Kevin, man, let me ask you this, man, because, you know, not only are you a serial entrepreneur, but you're the founder of a few charitable organizations, runningforbrews.com, and 72 Hours to Key West that helps families during the holidays, man. Why is mm -hmm. philanthropy important to you? You know, I just, again, it goes back to that old saying of, you know, you help enough other people get what you, you help enough other folks get what they want. Ultimately, you'll get what you want in return. And so, you know, there's, um, I think it's every individual, you know, human being's life duty to help the next person in line, right? To help others and really put others first. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, bo both of those organizations, you know, basically were a result of the 2008 crash. Like literally both okay. of those were formed um, during those years following that, that were wow. very challenging times in my life. And uh, both of them, again, were, they're kind of, re they, they, they revolve around helping others, but they also revolve around health and fitness. And so uh, runningforbrews.com, uh, that started off as kind of a, a, a way, I was a, I'm a big runner, well, I used to be, I guess. I'm a big, big runner and, um, and, I, and I enjoy craft beer, right? That's one of the, my, my things. I just I enjoy good craft beer. I enjoy going to breweries. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wanted to start a social event that met once a week at a local brewery to where we can go out, run a 5k, be healthy, you know, meet others, be social and enjoy a good craft beer afterwards. Um, ultimately I started that just with the intent of having fun and meeting others. And that really turned into something to where we need to expand this across the country and, uh, and we need to monetize it. And also we need to find a, uh, a giving angle of this business as well. And so it turned into that there's, it's the largest social today. It's the largest social running organization in the country. We've got 38 different chapters and I think seven or eight different states. And, um, and we've done 
multiple different food drives and charitable endeavors in each one of those chapters and uh, have helped a lot of people. Lots of marriages have come about as a result of the, this weekly hey, running. Hey, hey. So it's been pretty cool. But anyway, that was, a, that was during that time in my life where I was really trying to just um, do something I really, I mean, I enjoyed real estate, but I didn't enjoy it when things were really bad, right? And uh, sure. it allowed me to get my mind off of it and focus on bigger and better things. And then the Key West ride, 72 Hours of Key West is, uh, is just that as well. Um, we we uh, did the first event in 2000 and I believe it was 2010. And uh, that is uh, a way, that was a way for me to help fund a local charity that I'm, that's near and dear to my heart. It's a good friend of mine, Rod Cleef. He's got a podcast as well, but uh, he, he basically feeds thousands of families every year and he's been doing it for many, many years. Uh, he had challenges during the real estate recession as well mm-hmm. and went from feeding thousands of families every year during the holidays to just a few hundred, which is still amazing. But uh, ultimately his charity got affected dearly because he used to self-fund it. And so I started that bike ride as a way to take you know, one of my hobbies, which is cycling, I enjoy riding bikes and uh, being around others that do as well and, and essentially raise money to help, you know, take it from a hundred, couple hundred families we fed every year to back up to a couple thousand. And um, we launched that event in 2010. We do it every year. We sell out every year. Last year, we, we donated $40,000 to to, to Rod's nice. charity, which ultimately fed, I think about 4,000 families here. Nice. Very nice. Holidays. So we've, uh, I think we've, now donated uh, over $200,000 over the years we've been doing the event. And um, again, it's just, it's all about helping, you know, help, helping the, the other person and uh, helping everyone around you and giving back. For sure. And Startup Nation, if that's something that you want to give and help Kevin out on his endeavor, you can go to both of those websites. Both of those links are there in the show notes for easy access. And I did hear about, man, you're, you're pretty active running triathlons and marathons, hiking, biking, and everything in between. So I did kind of gather that in my research for sure. I also heard, man, you're a bit of a wine and beer snob, man. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's just, uh, as I mentioned, I started running for brews uh, so that I could also, you know, uh, get my, my craft beer fix on a weekly basis and, sure. uh, and then my wife's a big you know I met my wife and uh, she's really into wine and so her and her and I really enjoy going out to you know like Napa or out the wine country once a year and uh okay. it just um you know we just we enjoy wine I don't, I don't know how to put it other than we enjoy <laughs> wine I, I would say I'm a wine snob I'm probably more of a beer snob than a wine snob but we fair enjoy, enough we enjoy a good glass of red wine and uh and uh and enjoy spending time out in wine country when possible Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. Kevin, I think all entrepreneurs have a superpower, man. What's yours and why? I think just helping others. And I, and I, I, hear and that. I truly enjoy doing that. I don't know if that's a superpower. I think it just, it's a, it's, I, I don't know if it's a is. gift because I think everyone can actually, everyone can help the next person, right? Everyone's got that in their heart. They just got to, you know, find it sometimes and, uh, and open it up to the world. So I think that's it, man. I really enjoy that. And, and I, and I see the direct impact that I've been able to have on, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. And um, I feel like that's, that's the reason why I've been put on this earth. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And before we ask, ask the last question, we would just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Startup Life Podcast brought to you by the Binge Podcast Network. You've brought amazing value to uh, myself, my listeners, Startup Nation, and we really appreciate you definitely coming on the show. But at this point in time, I'm going to give the microphone to you because there's an entrepreneur out there, man, who's they're on the ropes. They're afraid to start or they're afraid to keep going because they've had a, a few rough spots in their business, man. Give them some words of motivation to tell them to get moved forward. Yeah, I mean, I know this is probably so cliche, but it really is just, uh, you know, taking that first step of action. But just know, before you take that first step, knowing that, like, there's going to be challenges along the way. It's, it, there's going to be bumps and bruises. And just, just expect it. But, I, you know, one of the things that's always helped me is surrounding myself with others that are, 
not just doing what I wanted to do, but uh, doing it really well, that, that have ultimately succeeded uh, in whatever respective niche or business that you intend to go towards, right, or intend to be in. Right. And um, don't surround yourself with others that are at the same stage as you, because otherwise you're all going to fail together, right? You know, surround yourself by those that are, have been there, have been have done that, have found great success in whatever business that is that you're that you're moving towards. Um, so I think that's one of the big things is that just there's going to be bumps and bruises, expect it, and surround yourself by a really good team or a really good support network and that that's ultimately going to help pull you out of those those downtimes those ebbs and flows they're going to pull you back up and uh, and help you move forward and so i i think that's really the advice i give it's just uh, actually i've got one other piece of advice i'd like to give i think this is important this applies to real estate applies to uh, you know whatever you're going to tackle in life as far as a business is get focused Get granular focus. Like, pick, pick the one, whether it's a, a certain type of business or a certain asset class in real estate. But pick that focus and master it, and, and try to try to tune out all the other um, noise. Because there's, you know, there's a, a million and one different ways to make money as a as a as a business owner. Uh, many different types of startups, many different assets of real uh, real estate. There's a million and one different ways, probably more than that, to make money. Pick the one that you feel best aligns with you and your personality and your core values and just focus on it, master it, and give yourself the time necessary to actually um, truly master that craft, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean that you can't you know, go a different path years down the road once you've already found success in that one, but focus on it. Give yourself the time and just try to, again, block out all that other noise. So. I hear that. Thank you for sharing that. You heard that, Startup Nation. Get granular focus. I love that. I definitely love that. So that's going to wrap up this session of the Startup Life, man. Did you enjoy being on the show, Kevin? Oh, man, it was an absolute blast, Dominic. It really oh, was. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. All right, Startup Nation. So here's my final take. I love Kevin's path to entrepreneurship. It's a lot like how we talked about in the episode, a lot like Chester's where he was dating a young lady. That young lady's mom was dating somebody and it just kind of just happened that way and sometimes your path just happens accidentally that way and that's okay sometimes it just takes something to come out of nowhere to spark that idea to spark that brain to fuel your path to entrepreneurship another thing i want to point out about kevin's story is that i love how when he talks about the charities and helping people i think that's an important part of the entrepreneurial story look when you're on the path to entrepreneurship, your customers, they buy into you, they invest in you. So I think it's actually really important to invest back into that customer base, invest back into, uh, not necessarily uh, directly to the customer base, but something into the community that you can really provide value in. I think that's how you provide back value back to your customer base. But all in all, I think Kevin's story is very valuable to learn from and that and I hope you got that from this episode. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, have an idea for a show topic, or like to advertise on our show, please send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is here in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be now be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or whatever your favorite platform to get your podcast on. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. Also, don't forget to sign up for the Startup Life All Access Pass to get exclusive content. This is exclusively on the Bench Podcast Network's Patreon page. And hey, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.
What's going on, Startup Nation? Probably here for more content, huh? All right, wait no further. Also, when I said that when we want to expose them to social entrepreneurship, um, it's like we don't really, we're not even hoping for everyone to become an entrepreneur. And like, while I think I'm like, I love entrepreneurship and everything, I think um, like, I think everyone's a change maker. I think that's also like our vision for fulfill and everything. And so like, it's like whether you become an entrepreneur or like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it is that you want to be, like our goal is really to make sure that people have that mindset, that impactful mindset of wanting to make a difference in what they do. And that's really the goal at the end of the day. That Startup Nation is Tiffany Yao, changemaker and Philadelphian. So go ahead and subscribe to the Startup Life podcast right now on all of your major podcast platforms. So that way, when that episode is available, it'll be right there waiting for you. So until then, Startup Nation, you got a company to grow. Get out of here.